Greetings. Thank you all for returning to this week's new study episode titled, Titus Cast on Crete, Part 2. I am Pastor John, welcoming our returning global audience of unchurched, self-study people, as well as those who are part of a church. For anyone looking for greater depths in God's Word with a stronger personal study, we also extend a warm welcome to all our new listeners here for the first time. Thank you all for listening. May you all be blessed of God. Last week, we started our three-part examination of Titus titled, Titus Task on Crete, Part 1, posted October 2nd. First, I gave you seven points of information to better acquaint you with who Titus was. Very little is known of Titus even among many who preach or teach Scripture. I found far more information than the time format of this podcast would allow. So, it was necessary to just give you the highlights because of time constraints. We also examined the first four verses of Titus. We found one really important item of note. John Wesley's notes on the Bible told us, We serve God according to the measure of our faith. We fulfill our public office according to the measure of our knowledge. This language, public office, is not necessarily what we think of as a public office today. It may be better expressed as our spiritual office, or office of teaching, our gift, or office of healing, and so forth. The bottom line in last week's teaching of this portion was how different To find out more, listen to our previous episode titled, Titus, Task on Crete, Part 1. Welcome to our three-part examination of the book of Titus. Again, only 16 verses long, typically used for verses providing reference to something else being taught by pastors, preachers, or teachers. With that said, as a reminder, let's dig deeper in the book of Titus. Titus, verses 5 through 9 reads, The reason I left you in Crete was to set in order the remaining matters and to appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be blameless as one entrusted with God's work, not arrogant, not prone to anger, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. Instead, he must be hospitable, devoted to what is good, sensible, upright, devout, and self-controlled. He must hold firmly to the faithful message as it has been taught, so that he will be able to give exhortation in such healthy teaching and correct those who speak against it. What is meant in verse 6, the word, quote, elder, end quote? Are there not elders in many churches today? Of the good elders I know, meeting the complete list outlined in verses 6 through 7, in today's world, might be more difficult today than in years past when such things as divorce was much less common. Since the word elder 
is lowercase here, does that mean something different than if the word were capitalized? Even if it does, it does not charge the requirements outlined in verse 6 and 7. Hopefully, to answer these questions, the word meaning for elder may help us out. First, the full understanding of that definition so we can apply the correct meaning to the word elder here in Scripture. An adjective, the comparative degree of prespice, quote, an old man, an elder, end quote, is used of age, whether of the elder of two persons or more, the eldest or of a person advanced in life, a senior. The elders are the forefathers in Israel. The feminine of the adjective is used of elder women in the churches, not in respect of position, but in seniority of age, of rank, or positions of responsibility. 1. Among Gentiles. 2. In the Jewish nation. Firstly, those who were the heads or leaders of the tribes and families, as of the seventy who assisted Moses, and those assembled by Solomon. Secondly, members of the Sanhedrin, consisting of the chief priests, quote, elders, end quote, and scribes learned in Jewish law, those who managed public affairs in the various cities. Three, in the Christian churches, those who, being raised up and qualified by the work of the Holy Spirit, were appointed to have the spiritual care of and to exercise oversight over the churches. To these the term bishops, escapoi, or overseers, is applied, see Acts chapter 20, verse 17, with verse 28, and Titus verses 5 and 7 the latter term indicating the nature of their work, presbytery, their maturity of spiritual experience. The divine arrangement seen throughout the New Testament was for a plurality of these to be appointed in each church. Titus verse 5. The duty of elders is described by the verb episcopoi. They were appointed accordingly as they had given evidence of fulfilling the divine qualifications. Titus, verses 6 through 9. 4. The twenty-four elders enthroned in heaven around the throne of God. Revelation, chapter 4, verse 4, verse 10. Chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. Chapter 7, verses 11, 13. Chapter 11, verse 16. Chapter 14, verse 3, and chapter 19, verse 4. The number 24 is representative of earthly conditions. The word elder is nowhere applied to angels. From Vine's Expository Dictionary. As you can see, the word elder means more than simply being an older person. What an elder is in the church is identified by the third and fourth meanings of the word elder. We should also note that the number 24 is representative of earthly conditions. The word elder is nowhere applied 
to angels. This is how elder should be defined in any church, even of modern mankind. That being true, one can then see why Paul tells Titus that such people need to be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion, why an overseer must be blameless as one entrusted with God's work, not arrogant, not prone to anger, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. That biblical definition of elder outlined by Paul, as we found it defined, makes being an elder in God's house today very difficult to impossible if such charges are to be the way an individual governs their life. All of us were sinners before being saved by Christ by his great sacrifice for us. Even now saved, we still sin. So it also was with people of the past like Paul and Titus. If all are first sinners, including all biblical people like Paul and Titus, then how is it that anyone can be found as Paul writes to Titus? How is it that anyone can be found eligible to be an elder? Divorce is a commonplace thing in American society. This is also true elsewhere in the world as well. Many men and women, after divorce, eventually remarry another person. So, today, how can a man be found the husband of one wife, as Paul writes to Titus? If one is legally divorced, thus legally unmarried again, then they remarry later to another person. Are they married to one spouse? Many Christians say the answer to that question is no, meaning such people are now no longer the person of one spouse. Even if they are in a second marriage, how is it true they are a person of more than one spouse if they are truly faithful to the current but second spouse? This is the conundrum that many people employ without any better scriptural evidence than what we have here in Titus for their claim. However, could it be meant that a husband has no other wife than the one he is presently married to? A question that many hardline Christians I know will not even entertain as a means of resolving this issue against the fact no one is perfect and therefore would mean no one is capable of being an elder in today's church, especially if you look at their entire life before and after salvation. Even in the days of Paul and Titus, there was marriage infidelity. There was also divorce, whether legal or not. As it is today, in biblical times, one could also apply for divorce and get it. However, it needs to be duly noted that divorce was far less common in biblical times and even in the days of Paul and Titus. Looking at this issue further, are any of us blameless? Are any of us with faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion? Is anyone not arrogant, 
not prone to anger, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. While none of us are all these things listed in Titus, can we also say that we are without any of the mentioned issues? Remember also, one can be drunk with work or other things besides liquor. I think it is best noted that maybe, just maybe, Paul takes into account what is proper and is encouraging Titus to seek a higher ground to be more fitting to the office and authority that he, Titus, holds and exercises. While Paul's expression is of perfect character, could it be said that Paul, even Titus, were without any of the aforementioned issues? Unless they have found a way to be perfect in this sinful world, I doubt they meet the requirements here in Paul's writings to Titus. I think Paul gives us the gold standard to reach for. If we are reaching for this standard, at the very least, we would meet it better and better over time. Not to mention what being saved in Christ means. Looking further, we find, ordain elders, appoint the most faithful, zealous men to watch over the rest. Their character follows Titus verses 6 through 9. These were the elders or bishops that Paul approved of, men that had living faith, a pure conscience, a blameless life. From John Wesley's Notes on the Bible. Here we see three requirements. We need a living faith, a pure conscience, a blameless life, whether male or female. And that raises the question, do we have that in this sinful world through our salvation? Notice as well, John Wesley said, appoint the most faithful, zealous men to watch over the rest. At the very least, this implies that earthly elders are chosen by whom most meets the requirements laid down by Paul to Titus. If this is true, then someone married for a second time could, in fact, serve as an elder in this regard. We also have a bit more clarity on this subject of one wife. The husband of one wife, surely the Holy Ghost, by repeating this so often, designed to leave the Romanists without excuse. From John Wesley's Notes on the Bible. So, it is clear that these verses had, in their day, most likely a target audience. That raises the question of who this applies to after this issue was outlined in the day it was an issue. If this was directed at the Romanists, does it have any value for us today? Can it further be seen as an instruction to us today? Now, notice what Vine's Expository Dictionary also told us. The word elder is nowhere applied to angels. That should tell us 
that when the word elder is being used, it is speaking of human beings and not heavenly hosts such as angels. I included that for clarity so we can clearly see an elder is, without doubt, a human being. Now, let's read verse 7. For the overseer must be blameless as one entrusted with God's work, not arrogant, not prone to anger, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. John Wesley helps us understand this verse. As the steward of God, to whom he entrusts immortal souls, not self-willed, literally pleasing himself, but all men, for their good to edification, not passionate, but mild, yielding, tender. From John Wesley's Notes on the Bible. This means that we are reading about how we should be to others outside our home. A married couple can certainly be passionate in their home. However, outside the home, a faithful one is not passionate in the same way that they are with their spouse. That really is the point here, being faithful to one's spouse. One should also not be self-willed, literally pleasing themselves and not passionate. Yes, passionate about things that excite you, like working on cars or making clothing. These are two examples that one can be passionate about, that passion that drives one to the highest degree of excellence they are capable of doing. Another example of being passionate about learning more in your Bibles and doing God's work. Yet, while maintaining an ability of being mild, yielding, and tender when others are in your company or presence. Verse 8 reads, Instead, he must be hospitable, devoted to what is good, sensible, upright, devout, and self-controlled. What does that verse mean? It seems just a reiteration of what Paul already said. Let us see what commentary can tell us. A lover of good men, margin, or things. The Greek means a lover of good and may apply to anything that is good. It may refer to good men, as included under the general term good, and there is no more essential qualification of a bishop than this. A man who sustains the office of a minister of the gospel should love every good object, and he should love every good man, no matter in what denomination or country he may be found no matter what his complexion, and no matter what his rank in life. Sober, just, upright in his dealings with all, a minister can do little good who is not. Holy, pious, or devout, faithful in all his duties to God. Temperate, having power or control over all his passions. We apply the term, now with reference to abstinence from intoxicating liquors. In the scriptures, it includes not only that, but also much more. 
It implies control over all our passions and appetites. From Barnes New Testament Notes Notice what Barnes told us. We now first think of being free from intoxication caused by liquors and today worse things. However, as I noted earlier, in the scriptures it includes not only that, but also much more. It implies control over all our passions and appetites. Notice that it says we need to control all our passions and appetites. One can be very passionate about working on cars. So passionate that cars takes all their time away from other things and associating with the people in your life. Even while eating, one can be so passionate about cars that they are reading about them to gain new understanding and knowledge. Seriously? While eating? Leastwise, in America, this happens. I know because I have seen it. Co-workers who will not even take a lunch break or just eat lunch and enjoy conversation with their co-workers. That kind of thing is a life out of balance. After all, in this life, isn't a well-balanced life better for any of us than one that is too centralized in or on one thing? Verse 9 reads, He must hold firmly to the faithful message as it has been taught, so that he will be able to give exhortation in such healthy teaching and correct those who speak against it. From Free Version of New English Translation with Limited Notes In approaching the end, this is what we can learn from this verse. Holding fast the faithful word, that is, the true doctrines of the gospel. This means that he is to hold this fast in opposition to one who would wrest it away, and in opposition of all false teachers and to all systems of false philosophy. He must be a man who is firm in his belief of the doctrines of the Christian faith, and a man who can be relied on to maintain and defend those doctrines in all circumstances. As he has been taught, margin in teaching, Greek according to the teaching. The sense is, according to that doctrine as taught by the inspired teachers of religion, it does not mean as he had individually been taught, but he was to hold the faith as it was delivered by those whom the Savior had appointed to make it known to mankind. The phrase, quote, the doctrine, end quote, or, quote, the teaching, end quote, had a sort of technical meaning, denoting the gospel as that which had been communicated to mankind, not by human reason, but by teaching. That he may be able by sound doctrine, by sound teaching or instruction, he was not to dictate or to denounce, but to seek to convince by the statement of the truth, both to exhort and to convince, to persuade them, or to bring them over to your views by kind 
exhortation, and by the instruction which shall convince. The former method is to be used where men know the truth, but need encouragement to follow it. The latter, where they are ignorant or are opposed to it. Both exhortation and argument are to be used by the ministers of religion. From Barnes New Testament Notes Note these comments in closing. One must hold fast the faithful word. One must have a firm belief of the doctrines of the Christian faith. To be one who can be relied on to maintain and defend those doctrines in all circumstances. One is to hold the faith as it was delivered by those whom the Savior had appointed to make it known to mankind. No one is to dictate or to denounce, but to seek to convince by the statement of the truth. What does that last statement say about many who in America, as I have seen, who give what I would call a troubling witness to Christ, who force themselves in the name of God on those who are unsaved and thus making them angry and unwilling to hear the gospel by anyone? In this regard, do you dictate denounce people when you witness to others? Or do you seek to convince by the stating of the truth in kind and gentle ways as we are properly encouraged to do? Next week, we will conclude our examination of the book of Titus, a very infrequently examined book of the New Testament. Many who preach or teach on something else only use Titus as a reference, simply grabbing a verse or two. So, to be different, we will continue with the last part of our study on these 16 verses by Paul to Titus. Join us next week for our final episode titled, Titus' Task on Crete, Part 3. Play or download our episodes from one of our podcast hosts, or follow direct links to these platforms on our website under the podcast menu item. Details follow. This study podcast is a wholly self-funded outreach presented by the Church of the Unchurched. Currently, an all-electronic Boston-based outreach uniting the community of lost, searching, lonely, and forgotten in Christ. We greatly appreciate serving our international audience. God bless you all. If you are visiting for the first time, welcome, and God bless you. We look forward to the return of all our faithful listeners and new listeners. Please share our podcast with family, friends, and others you believe would find it a blessing. Thank you all so much. God bless you all. If you are unsaved, we truly hope you find God as well as receiving Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Please find a short link to our episode titled, How to Be Saved, at the bottom of any episode description. To learn more about us and who we are, give our episode titled, Introduction, About Us, Who We Are, 
a listen. In that episode, you will learn more about us, who we are reaching out to, our mission, vision, ministry, and more. Again, a short link to this episode is found at the bottom of any episode description. If you go to our internet homepage, under the podcast menu item, you can find many popular podcast platforms we are found on. We are located at this internet address, unchurched.site123.me. At present, we are located on a growing number of podcast sites, so you should be able to find us on a platform you like. We refresh all our feeds with every weekly episode upload on Sundays. These sites update our feed within 24 hours of our refresh. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good thing you do or say. Until next week, this is Pastor John for the Church of the Unchurched.